comes from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. All right. Uh, good morning, Renewal. Uh, my name is uh, Gentry uh, Maurice Williams, if you have never met me before. Um, welcome um, those who are here to renew once again and if you're online uh, tuning in welcome as well today is a very very special day uh, Sunday in the global liturgical calendar of the church across the world uh, today many of you know who have been accustomed to coming to church you may have heard this Sunday called either Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday uh, and what Palm Sunday is about essentially is Jesus entering into Jerusalem and the implications of that. Um, now you may ask, what does that have to do with the church nowadays? What does it mean for Jesus to enter into a place that's not even in the U.S.? Why does the church celebrate that? Uh, stay tuned. I think I have some things for you. If you notice in your Bibles, most of your Bibles, um, or if you have your phone with you, the type, the uh, heading of this particular section is called the triumphal entry. Now, triumphal entries, maybe we don't use that kind of language nowadays, but many of us are very accustomed to triumphant entries. One of the most famous ones globally that everybody tunes into is the Olympics. Okay? Uh, whenever you watch the Olympics, uh, the Olympics lets you know it's on the way, whether it's the Summer Games or the Winter Olympics. Uh, the, the, whatever the ho whoever the host country is, they have this incredible pageantry of just events lined up where you see all of these type of performances happening. Um, you get shots of various parts of the country, the beauty of the country. Uh, you get, uh, even when you tune in, even if you're not interested in the Olympics per se, a lot of people tune into the opening ceremonies. Just because there's so much going on, you get a chance to see athletes from all over the world uh, with their flags marching in unison and then capped with the Olympic torch being lit. And so all of that fanfare and pageantry brings in said Olympic Games. It's something that many of us find ourselves being in awe of, even if you're not interested. However, a lot of us, and maybe you have heard this, 
The Olympics, the arrival of the Olympics, the fanfare of it, the fun of it, there's a very, very, very big dark side to the Olympics. Many of the countries that host the Olympics don't have the infrastructure to actually host the Olympics. And so whenever they bid for the uh, Olympics and they get it, they have to rush to prepare and build out often tons of arenas, stadiums, hotels, places for tourists to travel. And how they do that often comes at the expense of the people in that country, particularly those who I would call disinherited. These are groups of people who the country would look at and figure they have offered not very little, if not anything, to the country. And so these are the folks that it's very easy to kick out and move around. And oftentimes, many of these stadiums and places kicks folks out by the thousands, if not the hundreds of thousands. Often there's no recompensation for when, when, for when they get removed and they sure don't get to participate in the Olympics at all. So in other words, what's grand and a place for celebration for many people, for a lot of other people, it's a place of lament and fear and insecurity. And so this morning, we're going to look at an arrival, and a, tri a triumphant arrival, and we're going to ask, what type of arrival is Jesus? What does it mean to people? What, who does his arrival place, or what does it displace? And who benefits from his arrival? What does Jesus' entrance into, into Jerusalem communicate about the type of ruler and royalty he is? Now we are reading in the Gospel of Mark. Um, this particular event is recorded in every single other Gospel account, but we just going for the, for the sake uh, pretend like we've only got Mark, just like the folks here do. All we got is Mark today. All right. Now, if we notice, one of something that's very important to an arrival is whenever you have an arrival of a special person or event, how they enter communicates something about them. All right. I don't know if I, I, I would imagine many of you have not been saved your whole life. Perhaps you know what it's like to wait in the club line and you see somebody that's VIP pop up and they displace everybody that's in the line that's been waiting for two hours, right? That tells you something about what the owners think about the people that's waiting there. You're not valuable to them as that person, okay? We'll find also what, how that person arrives means something. So we know, we know uh, that somebody is very important, especially a political figure, if you're riding on a road and you see a limo and you see a motorcade of security cars pass by, you know that's somebody important, okay? You don't know I'm important, I'm pushing past you in the 2015 Honda Odyssey. That's a regular dude passing me, all right? Jesus, interestingly enough, when he arrives, the text says he comes in on a coat, a young donkey. Now, that's not a very common thing for someone who would, I guess, have a royal claim. That's not necessarily your vehicle of choice. Um, if you were Caesar, or perhaps if you were someone that is very important Roman official or military general, you would come in on a war horse. Okay, I don't know if you ever stood next to horses like Clydesdales, but those things from TV, they look cute. But when you get in person and stand next to those things, they're massive, they're scary actually. And that type of animal or war horse will communicate to you 
the power of said person coming. It's intentionally a war horse chosen to communicate when Caesar shows up, he wants you to know he sits above and rules with power. Also, which you will probably see if you were a Caesar or a Roman official in this time period, you would see a military following. There'd be an entourage. There would be Roman soldiers lined up on the front, back, and sides of Caesar and said official. And I don't know if you know much about the Roman army then, but these dudes are not a joke. If you try to cross over a certain line, you are surely going to die if you try to get close to Caesar, regardless of if you're a friend or foe. Jesus, interestingly enough, has no war horse when he arrives in Jerusalem. And by the way, this is taking place a few days before Passover. Jesus comes in on a coat. Why? There's a prophecy being fulfilled in Zechariah, but often the ideal of someone who would come on a donkey or a coat would indicate that they are not coming as a ruler there to conquer, but they are coming in peace. So Jesus, when he steps into the city, he's communicating to the folks that he is the type of ruler that brings peace to the people he's coming to. In other words, if I'm someone and I am a citizen, uh, let's say they decide for whatever reason to host the Olympics in Louisiana, that probably would never happen. But let's just say that that happened. I would be scared because I probably would be one of the people that get pushed out. Right? Seeing the Olympics would not be good news to me. But ironically, or interestingly, the people who are there with Jesus are folks who are very lowly and poor. They are the people celebrating Jesus in this case. Who is there and who has access communicates the type of person or ruler or leader you are. Or, better put, who does not have access to you communicates the type of leader you are. Jesus, as he's coming in, he's sitting on a coat, a young coat, which means he's not high off the ground. He's probably marching eye level to me. And it tell, the text tells us that there are people who are coming, this is around verse 8, they're running up in front of Jesus' coat and they're spreading their cloaks, they're spreading their clothes in front of him, which means many of them can go up and touch Jesus. That's something you'll never do to a leader like Caesar. Not especially if you're poor. The people that Caesar would have close to him are people that have prominence. But here are people that have not much reputation and all of them can run and access and touch Jesus. That's what we learn often from Jesus' gospel. As a matter of fact, if we were to go back a little bit, and, uh, we talked about this in Renewal a few weeks ago. Bartimaeus was right before Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And if you remember, Bartimaeus yelled for Jesus to stop for him. He was a blind beggar, and the entire crowd told him to shut up, basically. Why would he stop for you? And interestingly enough, Jesus stops for him. Jesus is the type of ruler that stops for those who have been broken and disenfranchised and disinherited. 
Bartimaeus probably wouldn't be a surprise that he is in the crowd actually spreading his cloak in front of Jesus as well. One of the beautiful things about Christ is that Christ stops for us. Now that may sound underrated, like, man, okay, cool, Jesus stops for us, but think about that. Many times we don't go to people, think about the many times we've had a concern or a complaint and we withheld that concern or complaint because we didn't think we were important enough to people to actually voice it. Think about the woman with the issue of blood who was basically because of her issue of blood, she was deemed unclean and she could touch nobody in society. And she got to Jesus and touched him and Jesus stopped for her. No one else would stop for that lady. Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? Think about the demoniac man that was in Samaria cutting himself with stones and he was such, such a terror to his community that they literally, his house was a graveyard. And Jesus, the narrative seems to indicate that Jesus intentionally went to him and stopped, just for him. Samaritans, people who are unclean in Jewish eyes. The type of people that have access to Jesus is often those who the world has no use for. The Olympics will never allow those folks who get kicked out to participate in the Olympics. As a matter of fact, the crazy thing about that is many of those structures, those arenas that get built, they're unusable after the Olympics are over. So not only is your home torn down, you can't even participate in what's built afterwards. That tells us what we think many times about folks who can do nothing for us. But Jesus, the very people we overlook, we think that they don't have any value to the world, our lives, those are the very people that Jesus allows to come up and touch and handle him. Those are the very people that Jesus stops for. This is something for the church to meditate on. If we had to be honest and ask questions, we would have talked to people and we would have asked them, do you think that the church is accessible to you? What would they say? Would they say, I gotta look a certain way when I come in here? Would they say, the church is only for this person, that type of person? Or would they see Jesus as someone that's eye level on them with a coat that they can come up and grab, that they can lay their cloaks down in front of? What does Jesus' arrival benefit for people? In verse 9, the people are saying something really interesting. It says, those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, I kind of wish sometimes the translators would break Hosanna down what it means. You might have it in your footnote, but it means redeem us, save us, deliver us. That's what they're yelling. The Passover is more than just a feast that is just a good old, we remember the good old days, but it's a feast of liberation. The Passover is a tradition that Israel has kept from the day in which they were delivered by Yahweh's hands from Pharaoh, 
And that was no pleasant thing. It was centuries of slavery that they endured their children being killed and tossed into the river, being put to work, beat down. And so when people celebrated this meal, it was a meal that remembered that Yahweh liberated us from tyranny. And that's what the people apparently believe Jesus is about to do right now. Hosanna, blessed is the son of David. They're yelling to him, save us. Question, from what? What does Israel need saving from? Now, if you probably, if we could interview and pull up on the scene with the phone and interview somebody, they will probably tell you, we want deliverance from Rome. Because Israel has to do whatever Rome says at this time. They're colonized by Rome. They're occupied. They're invaded by Rome. There's many skirmishes that happen often in these days. There were many skirmishes that happened between Rome and Israel. They're expecting Jesus to deliver them. And that is true. They actually do need to be delivered from Rome. But there's a problem here. Right, right direction, but their to ask for deliverance is too shallow. What do I mean by that? They merely just want deliverance from Rome. But based off of their own history, there's always been a Rome. Before Rome, they were under occupied by Greek, Greece. Before Greece, it was, uh, it was uh, Persia. Before Persia, it was um, Babylon. Before Babylon, it was Egypt. In other words, to just ask for deliverance from a worldly power immediately will never stop other Romes from cropping up. There always would be another Rome. And so although they had the right ideal, they didn't go quite deep enough for it. The same is true of our society if we think about it. There's always another something when we ask deliverance for it. There's nothing wrong with asking deliverance from certain things. Maybe you're in an ill situation, an oppressive situation, uh, a harsh situation, and you say, I need deliverance from this. Nothing wrong with asking the Lord from that. But what Jesus is doing here, I think, according to Mark, is something interesting. If we notice, most of us may, if, if, if we hear somebody yelling to you, Hosanna, praising the highest to you, most of us would stop and revel in that praise. You know, I think of it like a, kind of like a good wrestler. You know, when a wrestler comes out, I don't know if y'all ever watched wrestling before, but the crowd yells their name and they're cheering and they're just soaking it up. Most politicians stop right there, if we're honest. It's good enough for me to just have a positive image. I won't go any further than I think I have to. But Mark, interestingly enough, he... He almost paints Jesus as if Jesus is the people's champ, but Jesus does not stop. He does not get off his coat and sit in the praise of the people. He keeps going. We're going to get there and get, get to why I think that is in a little bit. So Jesus is not merely there for a deliverance only from Rome. There's something else he's after. Jesus keeps going, and it says in verse 11, he arrives at a very interesting place. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The temple 
in Jewish society is the pinnacle of activity. As a matter of fact, the temple, even in this day, was so impressive, there's very little Rome had to offer that looked as impressive as this temple. It was always full of activity. That's where it goes down at. In, in Jewish society, no matter what's going on, we're going to go to the temple, especially during Passover. So what might we think the Messiah would do? Or what would they think? Where would the Messiah stop at and give his inauguration speech or, or whatever? Where would he stop at in Israel? The temple. That would be the place that if, if, if this Messiah who we've been waiting for is going to save us, of course it's going to be through that channel, the temple. And the way that Mark describes it, as if Jesus seems almost unbothered or unimpressed by this physically impressive structure. It's, it's almost like he kept in there, he, he walked in there, took a look at, said, hello, how you, hey, how you doing, and left. Now, we don't get a response recorded from his disciples here, but I'd imagine they probably were scratching their heads. I imagine some of the crowd probably were scratching their heads. Why wouldn't you stop here? This is, come on, this is the temple. This is, the, this is where the Messiah is going to set up shop. It's almost as if it's like, oh, I got something else to do. That's almost how Mark writes this, if you will. Why does Jesus not stop here? And why does Jesus not linger here? Why, do, why, don't, why doesn't more happen here? That seems like something a Messiah would do to them. You know, <clears throat> I think what this is communicating about Jesus and who he is, is Jesus is our true temple. Let me explain what I mean by that. For us, we have temples in our society. Temples are places in which we rest and place our hope and salvation, our confidence that if we trusted in this, we will be saved through this. Many of us, I probably, if I asked you, what would be some places where we place our confidence and salvation in, in American society, a number of us could point to some places quickly. Politics, don't believe me, whenever you talk religion and faith with people, I want you to picture and remember how fast that conversation goes immediately into who you vote for. Many of us place our temples in our jobs and careers. Once I get this position, I'm good. That's my place of salvation. Once I get this education, I'm fine. Our country places our temple in our military. Don't believe me, look at the budget on how much we spend on military. Many of us trust in our armies. If I could be a little bit more bold, many of us are very, much, very similar to Israel in the sense as Christians, we place our temple, our confidence in an institution, church. And somehow, someway, God becomes synonymous with physical church. The temple here is not bad in and of itself. The temple's not the problem. The problem is what the heart of the people think the temple does. As a matter of fact, if you would, if you, if you would kind of Google what happened to this temple, it would get destroyed about a couple decades later, and the people 
in Jerusalem will fight tooth and nail for it. Many will lose their lives and die for the temple, and it will get destroyed anyway. Jesus predicted that. What a text like this, or this perhaps should communicate to us, is Jesus is probably not as impressed with our temples as we think he might be. It might not be a surprise if Jesus walks up into the, the fray and you, many of us try to attach Jesus a lot of times to our political affiliation. It, it wouldn't be a surprise if Jesus walked in, looked around, and left. Probably not as impressed as you think he would be. Maybe our ideals of how we think about church sometimes, maybe Jesus might not be as impressed as we think he is. We might be surprised for him to walk in, look around, hello, and leave. And we might find ourselves being shocked by that. This is our best of best. How could you not stay here? Why would you not stay at our temple, Jesus? I think some Jesus understands, and we've been talking about this as we've been in Mark in Renewal, Mark seems to be writing that Jesus is constantly telling his disciples, I have to go do something, and he's going to have to go die. The temples in and of themselves are not problems. The problem is we think the temple will save us. Temples were never for that reason. As a matter of fact, many times in the temple or other synagogues, if you even read in scripture, you will find people who are blind, lame, can't walk around temples. And if you were reading Acts, for example, and you see Peter, and I believe it was John walking with Peter, and there was a lame man who was laying ironically outside the synagogue. He clearly had been there for decades and no one in the synagogue could heal him. It took Jesus to touch him and get him standing up. Never was the temple. Our institutions are not bad. Matter of fact, a number of them are good, but they will never accomplish the kingdom of God. I said earlier that anytime there's an arrival of a significant person or an event, there are always people displaced and disinherited. Yeah, you, could pick, you could pick the greatest we got, you could pick the, the worst we got. Same thing. Uh, we, we have even a, a testimony of Israel's own history of that. Israel's greatest king, David. David had a man killed so he could sleep with his wife. That's the greatest king, though. Solomon, wisest king. Solomon not only turned his back on God, but Solomon plunged a lot of people in his own kingdom into slavery. You pick the best regime, there's always broken people that follow that regime. It's, it's who we are, we're human. Communicate something about our condition. Question, who is being disinherited on Jesus' arrival? Maybe you may see where I'm going, maybe you may be a little bit surprised for me to say this. Jesus is about to be the one that's disinherited. We'll get there on Good Friday. That's a plug for you to come to Good Friday service. But Jesus' kingdom kicking off is built off of, hit, and sustained by his own back. Instead of 
the very people who often empires are built on, many empires are built on the, the backs of poor people, cheap labor. He's going to be broken for his own kingdom. Those many people can recognize and recognize that they could draw close to Jesus because he was a humble king. But a lot of us sometimes can't see that Jesus himself breaks his back for us. It's by his stripes we are healed. Jesus blows by the crowd cheering for him. And some folks make note that a number of these people probably could have been the same people who turned their backs on Jesus when it was uh, Jesus up for crucifixion and, ye and yelled, crucify him. Jesus doesn't stop at the crowd's applause. He also does not stop at the most significant structure in Jerusalem. He keeps going. He is going to a place so that people could, we could actually say Hosanna and it be true. He's going to a place so that our temples, the fragility of those temples, no matter how great and splendor they're cloaked in, there can be some true healing of our, our actual temple, our bodies. And that's going to come at the expense of his own body being broken. Beloved, a, I titled this sermon, A, I, a, a Triumphant Entry. And that's because it does not look like any triumphal appearance you've ever known. I, I'd imagine a lot of us, if we saw this visually, and if many of the rulers of Jesus' day and even now saw something like this, and they heard people saying, deliver us to this person, they probably get a good laugh at what they're saying. What kind of king and ruler is this? Look at the people that's praising him. He comes on a coat. He doesn't even look like he changes anything visibly. What is he doing? There's no speech of military conquest. There's no military, no entourage. His disciples, I guess you could call them his entourage, but I don't think most of us want Peter and James and John if we get in a jam. I don't think we're depending on them to fight for us. No disrespect to them. We are reminded that we have a Savior that if you are ever concerned about what God thinks of you, Remember, Jesus does not come to us on a war horse, but Jesus comes to us on a coat. That means that there's hope. He's a savior that desires to bring peace to us. When we say Hosanna to Jesus, many times we don't know the half of what we really mean when we say that. But that's cool. Jesus will always go beyond what we actually think we need deliverance for. He'll deliver us from what we need to physically in the presence but he'll ultimately deliver us from the thing that's causing our present issue. And Jesus, even though it might frustrate us, I know a number of you who perhaps have been walking with Jesus for a while probably are very frustrated at times with Jesus blowing past the things we cherish so highly. Like it almost seems sometimes Jesus seems flippant of what's going on in your life at times. Not because he's not paying attention, is because, like here, he's marching to have his temple, or he's marched already to have his temple broken so that our temples, our bodies can be repaired, so we can be transformed. So, beloved, I pray that as we go throughout this holy week, we will resist the temptation 
of trying to make Jesus fit something we desire of Jesus. I pray that if you look at Jesus and you find yourself disappointed because he didn't do X, Y, or Z for you, I pray that the Spirit would give us closer eyes to see what Jesus is doing in our lives and see that that deliverance that we're asking for, it really is happening. Even now, Jesus is working those things out. And I pray that the type of Jesus that we as a church, small C and capital C, claim to believe in, that we will remember that just like this Jesus comes humbly, we best do that ourselves because Jesus has already repaired us. We should be in that same business of looking at and asking questions about who, do, who is not able to come to church because we serve as barriers. Because if Jesus came on a war horse, because that's what Jesus should have come on, because it's the reason Jesus has to go and get his body broken is because of me. Jesus should be coming to me on a war horse, but he comes on a coat. That should impact and rock us, and whatever we do is that it, Jesus, thank God, he did not come to us on a war horse, but he came on a coat. Let us pray, beloved. Gracious Lord, you know that we find, if we're honest, Lord God, Many times when we look at you, we don't find you impressive, and that's even true as us, as your followers, Jesus. Many times we, if we're honest, we could say we get disappointed by how it appears you respond to things. Maybe you don't always come and deliver us in a way that we desire. Maybe you don't always are not as impressed by the things in our lives that we think are the greatest things. But that's because, Lord, you see us for where we are, you see a group of people that are broken and you have mercy and compassion upon us. You desire, Lord God, not a temporary peace, not a shallow deliverance. You desire not a short fallen or shortcoming institution, but Lord God, you desire a wholesale transformation of your people and the entire earth. And that, that is why, Lord God, you shed your blood. That is why you were whipped. That was why your body was broken, Lord Jesus. You saw your people and you saw we needed true healing and deliverance. And you did not allow even our own mind, hearts, and desires for you to stop you on that mission. Like Mark recorded, you kept going. You could have stopped, but you kept going. I pray, Lord Jesus, that this week when we find ourselves in spaces perhaps where we're called to express humility, maybe we are being wronged, I pray, Lord God, that we will remember what you have done for us. And I pray, Lord God, that we will never be driven to, dis to despair because we know that you have, you experienced this, that despair for us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that even as we plan to spend some, plan to spend Easter this week, whether it's with family, friends, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we don't forget about the entry that you made into Jerusalem and, and the entry into our lives, Lord God. We ask this of you in your name, Christ. Amen.